0: that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're in the middle of this series uh, on the core values of Christ church. As we celebrate uh, five years of life together as a church on Easter, we're taking the seven weeks prior to Easter to uh, remember, or maybe to explain for you the first time, the things that we value as a church. And uh, if a church or any organization is going to have a healthy culture, one of the essential ingredients of that culture is unity. Unity is a very important thing in any organization. Organizational unity, organizational alignment, the pursuit of common goals and dreams. A great illustration of unity or the lack thereof is the 2017 and 18 San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Our beloved hometown basketball team is well known for having one of the greatest cultures in the NBA. It's led to five championships over about a 20-year period, and uh, things have always gone really well for the Spurs until last year when we really struggled, when one of our, well, not one of, when our star player, who shall go unnamed in this place, our star player refused to play for the team and was held out because of injury, and no one really knew what was going on, and you could almost see the cracks in the organizational structure of the Spurs throughout the season last year. Uh, It all, to some degree, came crumbling down as it became very evident that the star player and the team were out of sync, that the star player and the coach were out of sync. And if you follow the Spurs, which I hope you do, you know what effect that had. The same thing is true with any sort of gathering of people, and churches are not excluded from that. Churches need unity. They need unity if they're to move forward in their mission. That's not just true of individual churches like us here at Christ Church, but it's also true of the global church as well. So one of our values is partnership and unity. Partnership and unity. And we mean that in in a dual sense. We mean unity within our own congregation And partnership and unity with other congregations. So internal and external unity is what we're after. That's our topic this morning. And as we consider partnership and unity as a core value, uh, my mind this week was immediately drawn to this passage in John 17, which is Jesus's prayer for his people. John 17 is the longest of Jesus' prayers recorded in any of the Gospels, and it's actually the longest prayer recorded anywhere in the New Testament. And I want us to focus on the third and final section of the prayer, which Tim just read part of. The first part of John 17 is where Jesus prays for himself as he gets ready to go to the cross. And then the second part, from verse 6 to 19, is Jesus praying for his disciples, who are about to become apostles, those sent with the message of the resurrection of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And then beginning in verse 20, where Tim read for us, Jesus prays for those who will believe in me through the word of the apostles. So any of us here this morning who are believers, are believers because of the word of the apostles, which... ...has been preserved for us in the Bible. This is our only access to the gospel, the scripture. And Jesus here prays for us. And the main thing Jesus prays for is very clear. He asked that his church would be unified. And so that's our topic for today. And I want to summarize the main idea for you like this. Jesus calls the church to unity... ...for the sake of the world through the power of his spirit. That's the big point. Jesus calls his church to unity... For the sake of the world, through the power of His Spirit. And I'm going to divide this into four parts for you. First, I want to show you Jesus' desire for unity. Jesus' desire for unity. But before we get to that, just think with me for a second about this. Isn't it remarkable here that Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for His future people? Jesus here is praying for you and for me. If you're a follower of Jesus... You should rejoice in what is a unique truth of Christianity among all the religions of the world. Christianity says that not only do we pray to our God, but our God prays for us. The one who made us, the one who died for us, the one who was raised from the dead for us, the one who sent his spirit to indwell us, and the one who will return for us, Jesus, praise for us that's a remarkable truth that stems from our trinitarian theology so just at the very outset we can simply say you can believe this morning that if jesus prays for you everything's going to be okay if jesus prays for you all will be well we're going to be fine god is with us god is on our side i hope you'll believe that this morning when you struggle this week with doubt or with fear or with worry, or with grief. Can you remember? Can you remember that Jesus Christ is in heaven praying for you? He pours out effectual prayers. He strongly pleads to the Father for you. That is how much Jesus loves you, his people. So what does Jesus pray, at least here in John 17? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He prays that all of his church, all future Christians, verse 21 that they may be one. That they may be one. He prays for unity. He does that in verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. Now, there's been a fairly substantial debate among people who study the Bible for a living about exactly what this unity that Jesus asks for means. Is Jesus here praying for spiritual unity, or is he praying for organizational unity? And my answer is both. Of course, Jesus is praying for spiritual unity. In fact, if you here believe in Jesus, you have spiritual unity, whether you recognize it or not, with God and with every other Christian. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. Listen to this. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Jesus in parts is praying that every Christian everywhere will live in the spiritual oneness we share through faith in him. So he's praying for a spiritual unity for his people. But he's also praying for organizational, visible unity. Why do I say that? Well, because as we'll see in a moment, this unity is a unity that's intended to be seen by the world. So there must be some visible structural element to it. So Jesus is asking his father that his people, his church, might have a unity that is evident to the world. And this unity is found principally in union with Christ that we share through the spirit. But it's seen in some sort of organizational ecclesiastical unity. That's what Jesus wants. That's his desire. So pause with me and think. There's an obvious question at this point. If you're cynical, you've probably already asked it in your mind. Why don't we see unity? Why don't we see unity in their church? So No one in their right mind can say that the church is organizationally or visibly unified. Imagine two people who meet each other for the first time, and they're both reformed Christians, and they go to reformed churches, and one man asks the other man, what kind of church do you go to? And he says, well, I go to a, Re- a Reformed church. And he says, oh, the Christian Reformed church. And he says, no, 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 they're too, they're too liberal. Oh, you must mean the United Reformed church then. No, 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 they're too Dutch. Oh, okay, the Presbyterian church in America must be what you're talking about then. No, no, they're too big and they're too Southern. Oh, okay, well, I guess you mean the Orthodox Presbyterian church. No, 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 they're too conservative and too Northern. Well, I guess you mean the Reformed Presbyterian church of North America. Yeah, that's what I mean, but the pre-confessional revision group and not the post-confessional revision group, that's the kind of church I want to be at. None of that is an exaggeration. All those are real organizations. And those kinds of conversations do happen. And they illustrate for us what is abundantly clear to anyone who's been a Christian for more than 10 minutes. The church is not united. In fact, it's deeply fractured by splits and denominations and tribal loyalties further individual churches are often split within themselves and as you might know by experience this can happen by over by over any manner of issue it's virtually always been the case by the way it was the case even in the days of the new testament paul in first corinthians chapter one says some of you follow cephas some of you follow paul you should not divide you should follow jesus and he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 why this disunity is such a big deal. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, it empties the cross of its power. It empties the cross of the power. That's a significant thing. The church has always, to some degree, been split. It was split in the days of the Bible. It was split during the Reformation. It was split in the founding of churches in the United States. And it's split today. So why is there so much disunity in the church? And what are we to do about it if we're going to really say that one of our core values is partnership and unity. Well, there's a lot to say about that. A lot. More than one sermon can do. So I just want to make three brief comments. Three brief things under point one. By the way, this is the longest point, so don't freak out when point one of four goes a little longer. Okay, first thing, all disunity is ultimately always the result of sin. All disunity is ultimately always a result of sin. It's either sin on the part of a a mother denomination who no longer believes the gospel and therefore other churches must leave that denomination or it's sin on the part of churches who are splitting. Can you just think of it this way with me? In heaven, there is not going to be like a room set aside for Presbyterians and then a room way on the other end of the building for the assemblies of God. There are not going to be denominations in heaven. Do you know that? I hope you know that because it's true. Um, The Baptists aren't going to have their little room where no one claps and they have choir robes and the Presbyterians aren't going to have... You know, that's not the way it's going to work. Division always, to some degree, stems from pride. It stems from false teaching. It stems from some form of sin. Secondly, though, the answer to disunity is not to reduce the importance of doctrine. The answer to disunity is not to reduce the importance of doctrine. We can't just say... For the sake of unity, let's rid ourselves of all doctrinal precision and just forget about the things that we might not totally see eye to eye on that are significant. Just historically, organizations like the World Council of Churches have attempted to to do this, but what that generates, friends, what that generates is a false unity. It generates a unity around nothing at all. The great Yankee catcher Yogi Berra used to say there's an intersection in town that got so busy that no one went there anymore. It got so busy that no one went there anymore. It was too crowded. And that's what that kind of unity does. There's so many things there and so many beliefs there and so many different types of teachings there that really there's nothing there at all. So we don't pursue church unity by not caring about doctrine. We pursue it rather by rightly ordering and prioritizing doctrine. That's why here we talk about open-handed and closed-handed issues. Open-handed issues are issues that Christians in good conscience can disagree with. Closed-handed issues are issues on which, if we disagree, we might have unity, but we no longer have truth. Thirdly, wherever possible, churches should humble themselves recognize that they are only a branch of the whole church and work towards unity. That seems to be one of the practical applications of Jesus' prayer here. One of the ways that we've sought to do that from the very beginning of our church is through partnering with a church planning network called Acts 29. Acts 29 is not a part of our denomination. It's actually a non-denominational organization that focuses on central, closed-handed issues like the gospel and the priority of the church and the mission of God. And churches from different stripes can be apart and can unify together in mission. And that's been one of the great blessings of our church. There's five X 29 churches in San Antonio. There's us, the Presbyterians. There's an Anglican church. There's a Baptist church. There's a non-denominational church. And then there's another non-denominational church. And guess what? We're all really good friends. The pastors hang out together all the time. We love each other. We support one another. We care for one another. Do we agree on every single point? No. No, but we are completely for one another and unified in the mission of God. So that's one perhaps practical way that we seek to pursue partnership and unity wherever possible. We want to humble ourselves, recognize that we are just a branch of the church, and work towards unity where possible. So that's a lot in point one. <laughs> that's the longest point. The next three points are uh, briefer, and they're designed to, to sort of buttress this main value of partnership and unity. So Jesus here prays for unity. He desires unity for his people. Secondly, let me show you the basis of unity. Jesus tells us the basis of the unity for which he prays is the oneness that exists, the unity that exists between he and his father. Look in verse 21. He prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us and then 22 that they may be one even as we are one I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so the reason the church is to be one is because the church is a reflection of who God is the church is a reflection of who God is the church is united with Jesus Christ himself Peter in 2 Peter puts it really strongly. He says that Christians have become partakers of the divine nature. So the oneness of the church reflects the truth about God's own nature, about God's own character. Jesus is asking that his church would be, his church would be locked into one another, just like he and the Father are locked into one another. The pinnacle of my athletic career as a child was in fifth grade when... I repeated as the champion of the Belmar Elementary three-legged race. Uh, I'll sign your autographs later. Um, You know what the three-legged race is, right? I had a partner and we would strap our two legs together with a rope and attempt to run in sync against other teams and I dominated. I mean, third, fourth, and fifth grade, reigning Belmar Elementary School champion. But in order to succeed in the three-legged race, you have to be in sync. You have to be locked in. Step by step you have to be running at the same rate of speed at the same time You have to be united and that's what jesus is saying. He and his father are like and because he and his father are like that So his church should be like that as well Hopefully, um, we can see then that this value of partnership and unity It's not just an aspirational thing that we would love to one day attain, but that's not really possible No, the unity of the church is valuable because it reflects God's character. Practically speaking, then, it seems fair to say that the closer a particular church grows with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the closer a church will grow with other churches, and the closer a church's own internal unity will become. If we're seeking a deep vertical connection with God, then we can find our way into horizontal connections with other believers in the Christian life. One sign of a church's love for God and understanding of the gospel, then, is a church's humble posture towards other churches in her city. A gospel-formed, God-honoring stance towards other churches is not to cave in on our theological convictions, but it is to highlight the good we see in sister churches in our city rather than highlight the bad that we see. And I've been encouraged in just meetings with other pastors, and pastors get together and have lunches and stuff, and those can often be sort of bad environments, to be honest with you. And I haven't seen much of that in San Antonio. I've seen the churches supporting one another and caring for one another. A sign of church unity is when churches celebrate one another's victories. Rather than thinking, we are the only church here who gets it. That seems to demonstrate the humility that comes from a growing connection with God. So we pursue partnership and unity because it's a reflection of the unity that exists within God himself Third, jesus talks about and prays about the purpose of unity the purpose of unity God himself has unity we read and then he gives us the reason for this prayer he's making verse 21 He prays that the church would be one so that here's the reason so that the world may believe that you god have sent me Again, verse 23 I want the church to be one, Jesus says. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So what's the purpose of unity? The purpose of unity is evangelistic. The purpose of unity is missional. The unity of the church serves the mission of the church. That makes sense, right? Think about this just in the context of a local church like ours. When someone visits our church, And when someone visits any church, we hope that they will detect a deep love for one another here. We hope that they'll be able to smell the spiritual unity and togetherness that the gospel produces in Christians. We want our spiritual unity, the overflow of our connection to Jesus, to be a thing people buzz about when they visit. When non-Christians come to a church... Part of what we want them to say is, where does this love come from, right? What are all these people doing together? And the answer is that this comes from the Holy Spirit, who dwells among us and causes us to be as locked into one another as the Father and the Son are locked into one another. It's kind of what we talked about last week when we looked at the idea of communal evangelism. The community itself is the best explanation of the veracity of the gospel, This should also be true in the context of churches working together. One of the greatest barriers to faith in our post-Christian era are divisions within the church itself. Listen to John Frame, one of my favorite living theologians. Here's what he writes. People naturally ask if the gospel is a divine revelation, and if Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord of love, why don't his people love one another more? Why all the backbiting, insulting, contending... Unbelievers have often used the church's divisions to excuse their unbelief. I don't, of course, accept the validity of that excuse, but I very much regret the necessity of having to explain why the church is God's people, even though it is so miserably divided. I agree with this. I think the internal squabbles on secondary matters are very destructive to the mission of the church, and they betray a misunderstanding of the church's current cultural standing. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, In the heyday of Christendom, churches received definition by contrasting themselves with and constantly criticizing other denominations and traditions. Today, we should define ourselves more by contrasting ourselves with the world and our surrounding culture. The world must see churches avoiding unnecessary divisions. I think that's really true. I think that's just a recognition that we don't have the privilege in our culture, and actually we never did, by the way, of using the pulpit to bash other believers over open-handed issues with which we disagree with them. Um, By the way, that's not the same, that is not the same as fighting against false teaching. Those are different things, okay? That's not the same as fighting against heretical teaching. Rather, a better posture is to never publicly speak ill of other sister churches that believe the gospel, but rather to build them up and to speak well of them. That's part of what we want to do when we think about partnership and unity. That's been been one of our commitments from day one, and it will continue to be, because the purpose of unity is the mission, the mission of God. Lastly, Jesus gives us forth the power, the power for unity. Unity. And, you know, we need the power. The church obviously needs it because it seems so divided both in local expressions of the body and globally. You know, one of my favorite George Strait songs is uh, Oceanfront Property. I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. From my front porch, you can see the sea. I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. If you buy that, I'll throw the Golden Gate in free. That's kind of how we feel about church unity if we've been christians for a while if you believe that church unity can happen I've got some oceanfront property in arizona to sell you We get cynical and jaded and think there's no way this can happen. And you know what we're right If we don't have the power But jesus tells us that there's power for unity Look at what he says in verse 22 the glory The glory that you have given me I have given to them that is the church that they may be one even as we are one. So the question then is, what is the glory? What is the glory Jesus refers to here? Jesus says that's what will help us to be one. So what is it? You know, it's hard to say exactly. I think it refers to Jesus' all-embracing power to accomplish the task that God gave him. Jesus is saying that the same power he had to accomplish his mission is now being given to us. Really, it's not a power, it's a person. Ultimately, you could say that the glory refers to the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, there's that word, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent, the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we are partakers of, have glory. What's being said here? Here's the point. Jesus Christ died To forgive our sins and was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and then he sent his spirit to his people to assure them of his ongoing care and grace and presence. And through the gospel of Jesus, we have all we need now to pursue both here in this church and globally through the church at large partnership and unity. The one spirit is a spirit not of division, but of peace and unity and through faith in Jesus. We can indeed be one. That's what we're called to rest in here. And it's what we're called to work towards. And it works because the gospel shows us, the gospel shows us our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, our own need. It shows us that we're worse than we think we are. And the gospel also shows us at the same time, Jesus all sufficient care for us, that he loves us more than we ever dared hope. And so if we can see ourselves rightly and see Jesus rightly, we will inevitably, over time, see others rightly too. Which leads us to lay down our divisions and our squabbles and our arrogance and our party factions and pursue love and peace that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The power for unity is in God himself, who is with us, who sent Jesus to die for us and who sent his spirit to minister to us. That's the glory that Jesus refers to here. So let's chase after it together. I want to close with a brief quote from uh, one of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. If you're unfamiliar with the Screwtape Letters, it's C.S. Lewis's uh, book where he dialogues letters written from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew demon named Wormwood. And in this book, all these letters are designed for Screwtape to teach Wormwood how to keep the church from being healthy, how to keep the church from thriving, how to keep the church from success. And in this letter, Screwtape tells Wormwood regarding Christians that are looking for a church this. There's one good point which both of these churches that they're looking at attending have in common. They are both party churches, the demon says. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on real doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say, communion and those who say the Lord's Supper when neither party could possibly state the difference between, say, Hooker's Doctrine and Thomas's Aquinas's in any form which would hold water for five minutes. Without that, the variety of usage within the Christian church might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. So keep them separated. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. We fight against the evil one by pursuing partnership and unity, and we live out the gospel and walk in step with the Spirit by uniting with one another here and wherever possible, loving other expressions of the church and the world. May it be the case with us. Let's pray.